The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man that firmly believes that your bracket is already busted. Here is the captain. Better get a good bracket if you can hack it. It's good to be seen and good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Hold on to them horses, because this week we are featuring order and chaos from one of the very best brewers in all of the land tactical brewing company down in florida this week we are featuring order and chaos this is a pina colada hazy ipa with pineapple toasted coconut sabro and lotus hops 6.2 percent abv garage grade we're gonna go with four and a half bottle caps out of five and we want to give some praise and thank you to our friends for helping us fill up the fridge this week first up a big shout out to yvonne and glasgow and a big we like your jib goes to heather in norcross georgia and last but certainly not least we have elizabeth and jeremy a double cheers elizabeth and jeremy are in dunedin florida everybody we just mentioned went to truecrimegarage.com and they clicked on that pint glass and helped us out with this week's beer run yeah if you like pina coladas then go to truecrimegarage.com and donate to the beer fund and if you're looking for the first 50 episodes those are now available on our website store at truecrimegarage.com. Carl, that's enough of the business. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime.
It was a normal, balmy Florida night in September of 2010. Three St. Johns County deputies were getting coffee at a Hess station in St. Augustine when a call came over the radio. Signal 18, shots fired. The 911 call came in just after 11.20 p.m. on September 2nd. The caller was screaming and panting. His girlfriend, Michelle, was unconscious on the floor. He sounded hysterical, to the point that the operator assumed he was a woman. Please, get someone to my house. My girlfriend, I think she just shot herself. There's blood everywhere. When the operator addressed him as ma'am, the caller calmed down, and his voice changed, modulated, and lowered. He said, let me tell you the truth. I work with y'all. He identified himself as Jeremy Banks, a St. John's Sheriff deputy. But he quickly lost it again and started screaming at the operator to get someone there now. The deputies at the Hess station sped to 4700 Sherlock Place, arriving at 11.25 p.m. Deputy Maynard said when they pulled up to the house, the door was open. Walking into the kitchen, she glanced through an open door on the left and saw feet lying on the floor. Deputy Jonathan Holly was already at the scene. He was in the room with the feet, a bedroom, crying, oh my God. For he knew the woman lying on the floor. They all did. She was Michelle O'Connell, Jeremy Banks' living girlfriend of over a year. She lay dying on the bedroom floor, a gunshot wound into the roof of her mouth, having penetrated her brain. This is Screams for Help, a close look at the suspicious death of Michelle O'Connell. And this is True Crime Garage. As we heard in today's trailer, Captain, the Sheriff's Department is already on the scene. Deputy Maynard stated that when she walked in, she witnessed fellow Deputy Jeremy Banks huddled, crouching down, and about three feet from Michelle's body, cell phone in hand. He appeared almost catatonic. Then the sergeant at the scene said, Quote, we have a pulse. Jeremy's affect changed immediately, according to Deputy Maynard. He snapped to it and became almost angry. She took him outside and tried to calm him down. This is from the New York Times, which did two long exposés about this case. It reads, quote, Ms. Maynard quickly escorted Mr. Banks, who had been drinking out of the house, All of a sudden, he started growling like an animal, she said. With his fist, Mr. Banks pounded dents in a police car. Maynard called another deputy over to help her corral Jeremy. Quote, I grabbed him and tuned him up. 
Another deputy, Wesley Grizzard, recalled, I told him, I don't care if you're intoxicated or not. You better sober up. Very strange actions for somebody that girlfriend just shot herself. Very strange indeed, Captain. Now, we need to give a little background here. Jeremy Banks is a member of the Sheriff's Department. He's only 23 years old, and from what I can see, he appears to be a bit of a hot head, uh, and his actions not always making sense in other situations, let alone this one, obviously. Deputy Maynard later said that the change in Jeremy's affect when a pulse was found, she found that to be very alarming. She said that she noticed he smelled like booze, but also smelled like soap and appeared to be clean. Paramedics tried to save Michelle for 23 minutes, but it was a lost cause. And unfortunately, she was pronounced dead at 11.48 p.m. that night. Well, just to be clear... Jeremy is a deputy as well, so he has all the training that these deputies had, but when they came into the house and saw Jeremy there, he wasn't trying in any manner to use his training to save his girlfriend. Now, spoiler alert, eventually Jeremy Banks will lawyer up. In that same scenario, that same line of questioning was asked of his lawyer, and his lawyer says, Look, in that moment, I do not believe that my client, Jeremy, was behaving or in deputy mode at that moment. He was in boyfriend, citizen mode and probably unsure of what to do. Those are not his lawyer's exact words, but on many levels, I can agree with what his lawyer is stating. But if your girlfriend is dying and you have training to help her, you would help her as her boyfriend. doesn't matter if you're in deputy mode or boyfriend mode. Both people have the same training. This will bring us to what we are going to refer to as Jeremy's first interview. This takes place an hour and a half later. This is now September 3rd at 1.23 a.m. And we have Detective Jessica Hines, who is interviewing Jeremy in a squad car, outside of the house and this is all being recorded on tape jeremy is telling the detective that he and michelle were at the amphitheater for a concert earlier that night and saying that they did argue a little bit while they were there he says we you know argued a little bit earlier today but nothing terrible just we were both fed up with each other's bullcrap that we've been going we've been dealing with We've been together a year and some odd months. I enjoyed the show. She enjoyed the show. And in the car, we were talking about it. We had decided that we were going to break up. She was going to move out. Then on this tape, we have about 25 seconds that are missing. And it's noted that those 25 seconds have been deleted. Now, in all fairness, it could be just silence, radio silence during that 25 seconds. We don't know. He goes on to say that we came home and we weren't arguing when we got home. We got home and we talked about it. We just said, you know, enough's enough. We've been fighting. We're done. And we're tired of each other's shit. And I told her that I do love her and I love Alexis, her little girl. 
but I just don't feel like we're best friends anymore. We're just, it's not working out. And she agreed. And then he says, this is when he goes and he sat on his motorcycle, which is located in the garage. And that's when he says, I heard the gun pop. The detective asked him to clarify, you were outside in the yard, question mark, the driveway, question mark, Jeremy's response, my motorcycle was in the garage, I was sitting on it with my head down, just upset about, you know, the breakup, I heard it pop, I knew exactly what it was, just instinct, I said, quote, oh shit, and I ran inside, I started screaming her name, and the bedroom door was locked. And I screamed her name again, and I heard it go off again for the second time. He's referring to the gun. I ran into the living room. I grabbed the phone, and I kicked the bedroom door in, and I found her, meaning Michelle, lying where she is. In this moment, they've not removed her from the scene. They tried to save her life for approximately 23 minutes or so, were unsuccessful, and now they are... I'm using air quotes here, processing the scene. Obviously, Jeremy is upset. But to kind of break down this evening, from what Michelle's friends and family have said, that she told people, hey, I think we're going to break up, but I have these concert tickets. I already asked Jeremy to go. I think we're going to have a good time. So I'm just going to take him to the show, and I might actually break up with him that night. So like Jeremy's story, They start heading back from the concert. They start talking about their differences. They decide mutually this isn't working out, and she's going to have a week or so to move her stuff out of his house. But the rest of the story, obviously we don't know how true this story is because we only have one side. And then there seems to be some kind of contradictions, like when he says, oh, well, we were both kind of tired of our shit, and then but I'm going to be sitting on my motorcycle upset, uh, basically with my head in my hands when he hears this gunshot go off. Yeah, and then we have this interview, if you want to call it that, that continues on, and I thought that the, the parts that I could hear and have included here in our telling of this true crime story, I, look, I get it that they're colleagues, And they've probably known each other for a handful of years or so. I thought that the detective was incredibly over-the-top casual in the questioning of Jeremy Banks. Now, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe she's trying to put on this persona and give off this vibe that, hey, you just experienced the worst thing possible I'm going to keep it kind of light in, in in this moment while we're recording. But I just, I don't know. I found her to be a little too casual. It was, it was a little uncomfortable for me to listen to, to the conversation, to be frank. I agree with you on some level, but we have evidence of this Jeremy guy acting like a lunatic. They show up there. He is basically on top of the body. Once they get a pulse, he starts becoming angry and punching the according cop car. to according to deputy Maynard. Yes. Those are actions of somebody that, like you said, I mean, he has this known temper. So maybe her strategy was, I'm going to try to remain as calm as possible. 
so I can keep him as calm as possible. In the detective's vehicle, Detective Hines asked if Jeremy was drinking that night. Jeremy is forthcoming, saying, yes, I was drinking beer. Hines says, what kind? Jeremy says, Bud Light. Hines goes, ugh, and laughs. Um, this is yeah, kind of what I, what I meant here. Jeremy responds, big ones. You know, I'm assuming he means the Tall big boys, cans, which yeah. you get at, at the uh, concerts. Hines goes on to say, how many do you think you had? Jeremy says four, five, maybe. When he says big ones, I don't know if he's talking about 16 ounces or 22 ounces. Well, that's what she said. Five 22 ounces is a lot of beer. Yeah. Hines asked Jeremy to describe what he did when he kicked the door open. Jeremy is crying during his response, or at least that's what I believe I'm hearing. He says, I kicked the door open and I kind of veered in and I saw her feet. I ran in and by this point he's, he's crying hard. He says, I saw blood coming out and I just grabbed her hand and I started, I dialed 911. Now we need to point out here, Michelle was found with a gun lying next to her and this gun is is Jeremy's service weapon. So we have a 911 call. We have the deputies showing up. They see one of their own over the victim. The victim appears that she shot herself. It's with his gun. And then once they get a pulse of the victim, the deputy that they know, the boyfriend, he starts acting erratic. And now they're doing this interview. Correct. And I, and I hate to keep kind of underlining this, but I think that it's important to do so that that behaving erratically is according to one deputy. I couldn't find anybody else backing up that statement. The closest I could find was the other deputy saying that he grabbed Jeremy up and told him, I don't care if you've been drinking, but you need to sober up. Yeah, but there should be some evidence of this if he put dents in the cop car. Well, exactly. And maybe that's part of the problem right? That that evidence is not available to the general public, that that evidence is being withheld or covered up. Right. It's worth noting that for most of the interview in my humble garage opinion here, that while we can hear, or I believe I can hear Jeremy crying at times during this interview for large portions of this interview, Jeremy does not sound sad at all to me. Uh, he, I never hear him say Michelle's name at any time. He does admit that he did not try to perform CPR or anything of that nature. He did say that he held her hand a little, but when first responders came in, he was not doing that. He was about three feet from Michelle. He also very strangely admitted to detective Hines that he initially tried to obscure his identity in the 911 call. Now, this is weird. This is very strange. Red flag. Yeah, it's it, look, I've heard the 911 call, and that's what I thought he may have been doing. Or again, in the moment, maybe he's not thinking clearly. Look, I thank God in heaven that I've never had to find myself in a situation like this. So I do not know how I would respond, how I would behave. I don't know that there is a common or typical way to behave in this scenario. But 
what's weird is that he is openly admitting this to the detective in this interview in her vehicle an hour and a half later. Well, I think a lot of people assume that when you find a loved one that you're going to be hysterical. And that's what I think a lot of these people that call 911 that are possibly guilty of a crime, they almost act hysterical because that's what they think they should be acting like. And look, I can't say for certain, but if one of my loved ones died and they have the 911 tape of me calling 911, I'd probably be criticized for being overly calm. But that's because in any of these emergency type situations, the best thing you can do is to try to stay calm. Right. The other thing too is don't kill your girlfriend. <laughs> right? So then you don't have to figure out how to act on the 911 call. I'm not saying that that's 100% what happened here. We want to go through all of the information first before we give an opinion, but yeah, it's it, I think in in any scenario where people are suspicious, I don't I'm to the point, Captain, where I think I've heard enough of these 911 calls, and I don't think it matters if you're over-the-top hysterical, if you're completely calm, somewhere in between. I think if people are suspicious of you, they're going to be suspicious of you hearing that call. Having said that, I think now's a good time to play that 911 call. 700 Sherlock Place. Okay, what's so going, going on there? To my girlfriend just shot herself with my key weapon. Please get okay, someone here now. Please. Sir, sir, we're doing that while I'm talking to you. Is she still breathing? No, there's blood coming out of everywhere. Please. please. Okay, so I, she, she's not breathing. Call dispatch on TAC 2. Get them here now. I understand. Sir, they, they are on, on the phone. I need you to calm down. Again, to me, this is somebody making a 911 call and going, how am I supposed to act? Because he comes in, you can't understand a word he's saying, he's shouting the address, and when they start calling him ma'am, it's almost like it pissed him off. <laughs> and then he's like, and then he he's, it's a Freudian slip, but he says, let me tell you the truth. And he says, and then he's like, I'm one of you. And he calms down. Now he's telling you the information you need to know. Now, here's my problem. If you're not in law enforcement and you and you are hysterical and you don't know how to calm yourself down, that would make some sense. But this asshole is trained. He's trained as a deputy. He has to call in. How many times has he showed up to a scene that there's an emergency and he has to be professional and get the information to the people. And he knows how important that information is. So he has training in CPR and to in, in medical things that he could have done to help 
save his girlfriend or ex-girlfriend, however you want to look at it. But he also has training on how to give information to dispatchers. And he doesn't, it's like he doesn't use any of that training. But I think it's on purpose that he's not using any of that training. Agreed. I mean, you don't want, if he is guilty of shooting his girlfriend and ending her life, he doesn't want to save her or help her or or provide help to her, be it through somebody else. Right. Because then he's got, we, we now have a living witness who can tell us, okay, Jeremy may be telling you this story, but here's my story. And by the way, I'm the one that took the bullet. So the thing that's incredibly weird to me, uh, th- there's a, a few things that jump right out that tape, right off the tape there. First off, I think my girlfriend just shot herself is the way that he first explains it. Yet, when he talks to Detective Hines an hour and 25, 30 minutes later, he's saying, I heard the pop and I knew what it was immediately. Right. He then tells Detective Hines that he kicked in the door and he finds her after hearing a second pop and there's blood coming out of everywhere, according to what he says on 911. So, it look, I know he lives on a street named Sherlock place. It does not take Sherlock Holmes to figure out if you knew what that pop was immediately, like you told the detective later and you kick down the door and she's on the floor and blood's coming out of everywhere. It's not, I think my girlfriend shot herself. It's my girlfriend shot herself. So that's a weird way of, of kind of delivering or not fully delivering the information like you're saying, captain, but then can I'm not the only one hearing how drastically his voice changes when he's yeah. called ma'am a couple of times. Bingo. And it's like his, it's like he, was he using a different voice on purpose in the beginning? He was acting. Was he acting? I'm an actor. And then his voice changes completely when he's called ma'am. It's almost like you hear the bonehead meathead 23 year old dude coming out in this guy douche and it's almost like eric cartman you will respect my authority yeah situation where it's like hey not only am i a man you know it's sir it's sir and not only is it sir but i'll tell you the truth i work with y'all i'll tell you the truth so you weren't telling us the truth earlier or you were purposely concealing this which we now know is fact he was purposely concealing his job his job title and who he works for in that call per what he tells detective hines his friend who's being extremely casual and um cordial with him in the moment he tells her that he was attempting to conceal his identity in that 911 call. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go, for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. 
Millions of people pass go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out BetterHelp.com garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited-time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. You'll step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. Use your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. And customize your very own luxurious estate island. Think expansive gardens and beautiful buildings. 
Collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. And you can chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. All right, we are back. Cheers, mates. Hang on to the edge of your seats. This is going to be a wild one. The attempting to conceal his identity is very fishy. Incredibly strange to me. It's yeah. just it, like, and here's here's where my head goes with it. That is he thinking that if I don't say that on the 911 call, if I don't let the operator know who I am, what job I hold, I know that somebody from the sheriff's office that I work at will be responding to the scene and likely may be the very first person on the scene. Can I tell them what what went down according to me, Jeremy Banks, and they buy it hook, line, and sinker and then tell it to the other people that respond and now I've just controlled the narrative. And by the way, I've controlled it in a controlled environment that is not outside of the people responding and showing up to my home on this night. Instead, he slips and he lets out his job. And now maybe this became something bigger than he wanted from jump street. What we do know that does happen 100% is that St. John's County Sheriff's office kept the investigation in house very quickly. They are saying it was not an officer involved shooting. This situation was a suicide. Yeah. I don't have a problem with them staying on the investigation, but maybe bring in a separate entity right away to double check your work. Even if it's just one or two officers from another department they can come in and, and double check the work. But I think there's enough contradicting storylines and narratives that Jeremy Banks is telling the officers and his erratic behavior when she seems to be and their erratic behavior when it seems like there's a chance that she could live. I think that's enough red flags. And then if you go back and listen to the 911 tape and he told you he's concealing his identity, but then you can hear it so drastically. So he's putting up a front. He is lying to the dispatchers for what reason? You have no reason to lie to dispatchers if your girlfriend actually shot herself. And I also thought it was an interesting line, two lines you pointed out when he said, I think she shot herself. And then he says, she shot herself with my gun. Correct me if I'm wrong, Captain, but the end of that 911 call, he is asked a direct question of, is she breathing? And he says, no, there's blood coming out of everywhere. Right. Is that is that what he says? Is my recall correct there? I believe you're correct. So You're okay. correct, sir. Again, he's trained, and even if you're not trained, I can tell you this from 
my days working security and responding to accidents and certain situations, a lot of times you do not need to hear or check to see if someone's breathing, to know that they are breathing. Because in a situation where somebody is severely injured, they sound different than when they are not injured when they are breathing. So it's it's a gurgling noise. Right. It's it's a very obvious situation that their lungs are going up and down. Now, it's very interesting to me that he says, no, she's not breathing. There's blood coming out of everywhere. All right. Okay. Given the wounds, and we'll go through some of the autopsy information here as we continue on, I would expect some blood to be coming out of everywhere. What I'm getting at here, Captain, is giving where sh- given where she was shot or shot herself, I could give him the benefit of the doubt if he just did not know that she was breathing. I'm not saying that she was. What I am saying is that when EMTs arrived on the scene, what do we know that they did? They attempted to save her life for 23 minutes. Right. What is missing from the public information about this investigation? And oh, by the way... If you don't rule it a homicide, if you rule it a suicide, then all of this should be public knowledge. This should be public information that that we all have access to. What's missing from this investigation, I want to know from that EMT, from that, that paramedic, the first one on the scene, when you got to Michelle, was she breathing? Because if she was, he tells the 911 operator, no, she's not breathing. There's blood coming out of everywhere. Guess what? Where she was shot? There would be blood coming out of her nose and mouth because of her breathing and attempting to breathe. And he would know that per not just his training, but any human with eyeballs would recognize that. Well, no. And and to be fair, maybe he's just in a state of shock. Okay. Give you that one. And I can give him this idea that, look, we all have been trained to do things I've brought it up many times on the show. You're trained as a banker what to do when robbed. Most of the time, when you are robbed, you do nothing that you were trained to do because you're in shock. Okay, fair. So that's why you didn't go to her aid and you didn't try to start doing CPR or any um, emergency measures to try to save her life. But then you called 911 because you're like, I can't help her. I'll call 911. Okay, fine. But then when you call 911, you have training of how to talk to dispatchers, how to try to remain calm during an emergency. And you didn't do that. And you actually tried to hinder the process. It's, uh, and I would like to know roughly what the time of death would be because I wonder did he pause? Did he walk around the house? Did he, um, did he sing 99 bottles of beer on the wall? Before he called nine one one to make sure by the time that by the time that the EMTs got there that she wouldn't be breathing. Right, she was pronounced dead at eleven forty eight p.m. And remember, the call came in at approximately eleven twenty p.m. that night, and we have deputies arriving on the scene at eleven twenty five p.m. We have Deputy Maynard who says that she was there by that time, and when she arrives on the scene. There's already Deputy Jonathan Holly who is present on the scene at that time. So very quick and a very decent response time there. Uh, the other thing, too, Captain, you're hitting on some things here, may have been con- trying to control the narrative. 
A couple things I want to point out about his interview with Detective Hines is in that initial interview, he says, he tells Detective Hines, and this is where he may have been trying to control the narrative, because again, we only have one person to tell us what was going on in this scenario. And maybe he's trying or attempting to present evidence of a suicide or her suicide. So, for example, he tells Detective Hines that the last thing he said to Michelle before he went out and sat on his motorcycle was, quote, I love you. Please don't do anything stupid. Now, he said earlier that evening when they were fighting that Michelle had told him or said to him, quote, you make me so mad I want to kill myself. Yeah, to me, that sounds like he's controlling the narrative or trying to. Let's just talk about it. Look, statistically, women are less likely to kill themselves by gunfire. So, and I'm not saying that it's impossible, but it's also strange that he is drunk or at least heavily intoxicated. Where is he going to ride his motorcycle to? He was not going to ride the motorcycle anywhere. He was just sitting on the motorcycle. So he's just sitting outside trying to chill out. Trying to cool off according to, yes, according to what he was saying. But even his statement when he walks out and he says, well, don't hurt yourself or don't do anything stupid or whatever his comment was. To me, that almost implies that he was heading off to go somewhere. So the death scene quickly became chaotic and confusing as we can imagine here. Everyone from the St. John Sheriff's office showed up to offer condolences and moral support to their fellow officer, Jeremy, his family and friends arrived as well. He talked quietly with his stepfather, who is a deputy sheriff from the Jacksonville Sheriff's office. This before he was interviewed about what happened that night. And when he was, he was interviewed in a cop car by a colleague, Detective Hines, as we already pointed out. Now, after Michelle's body was cleared, the house was sealed up for crime scene techs to pour over. But they didn't do much in the way of investigating as far as I can see. Jeremy said that it was a suicide. Officers at the scene said Michelle had a gunshot wound through the mouth and the gun was found right next to her. They noted a bullet buried in the floor right next to where Michelle's right arm had been. And this and these parts of what they're seeing at the scene is and was consistent with Jeremy's story that he had heard two shots. Now, crime scene photos show Michelle lying sprawled on the floor and the positioning and the details of the gun are of interest. The gun, a Heckler and Koch 45 caliber pistol is lying on the carpeted floor. It's got an attached tack searchlight. The tack light is on. The St. John Sheriff's office concluded that Michelle may be unfamiliar with weapons and not used to handling them had accidentally turned the tack light on as she used the gun on herself. Further, Disciplinary records show that Jeremy was known for failing to secure his gun in the past. He openly has admitted that sometimes after work, 
He just dropped his gun belt on the floor where anyone could get at it. Well, that's safe. I want to point something out here. Regardless of what happened in this situation, if Michelle did kill herself, if Jeremy is not responsible for her death, leaving your service weapon unsecured in a house that has a child in it, this is not a good police officer. No, he's a douchebag. And on top of that, just think think about this for a second. You you have this conversation on the way home. You guys are talking about ending the relationship. She has made some comments to you that you think are alarming, that you're a la- you're later going to tell people about in these interviews. So inst- instead of walking out to the garage and sitting on your motorcycle, when he says, oh, don't do something stupid or don't do something to harm yourself, you'd think at that point he would go figure out where his gun was and make sure that it was locked away and secure. Very quickly, the sheriff's office wrapped up the investigation at the scene. Michelle, despondent over the breakup, had taken her own life, I guess would be the conclusion here. Now, we do have some of the detectives that are backing up that conclusion. So we have one that says, quote, for her to stand still and allow someone to put a firearm in her mouth is ridiculous. That came from Eugene Tolbert, who was one of two detectives on the case. Tolbert said every time anything came up that looked inconsistent with suicide, there was something to explain it. His partner, Detective Hines, said in a recorded interview, quote, I didn't have any suspicions that it was anything other than suicide. I think that's what we were all kind of discussing, but just making sure that we covered our bases, end quote. Yeah, but their investigation that night is roughly three hours. It takes them roughly three hours to state that this is a suicide. And again, if it is a suicide, then the case is closed and all that information should be released to the public. But if I'm in charge and everybody at the crime scene or my coworkers are saying, look, chief, this is looking like a suicide to me. I'd go, yep, okay, well, let's wait till the coroner report. Let's keep the scene under lock and key. And then let's, if that's our finding, let's bring in another department and have them double check our work. And then if we still rule it a suicide again, then we can take our information and the information from the other law enforcement source and release that information. Because that's what you owe it to Michelle's family. Well, and you could also go into Eric Cartman mode and respect my authority. It's not chief, it's captain. All right? <laughs> it's <laughs> but, sir, but God no, there, damn it. There are so many ways, and keep in mind here, the sheriff in charge of St. John's, he's been around the block. He's been, he's been elected sheriff time and time again. He can call in a favor. He knows people. He knows the other sheriffs in the surrounding jurisdictions. He could call in and say, you know what? Can you send a couple people out here? We Even if he wanted his team to work the case or work the scene, right? send some people out as witnesses or send some people out to get involved or be a part of the investigation. The proper thing to do would be to hand it completely over as quickly as possible as you can to another agency. 
Yeah, but I could see because you're the responding officers, I could see why you would just stay in stay in charge and bring in some outside uh, sources as uh, as basically a checks and balance system. I'm going to continue on with the information that they, the sheriff's department, the sheriff's office has put out there in regard to the situation and their ruling of a suicide. They go on to say that Michelle had no bruises on her body. There was no disarray in the house or evidence of a struggle. Obviously, anybody that's dove into this case knows that there was a cut over Michelle's right eye, but this is explained away by the sheriff's office saying that it could have happened as she fell after shooting herself, which does not go with even the initial autopsy findings. The initial autopsy findings state that she was either kneeling down, sitting, or lying on the floor when she shot herself. Her falling, I guess maybe even if she was kneeling or sitting up, that that that's what they're saying where the the right eye cut could have come from and we'll get into this cut a little bit more because there are some scientific findings that change throughout this case but this is their initial reaction to that their other reaction to that cut is also that it could have been the result of the positioning of the gun which one expert is telling us may have been upside down and you talk about statistics captain where they say that it is less likely for women to use a gun to commit suicide. One stat that is weird is that it is very common that when a gun is used in a female suicide, that they tend to use both hands. And so this other expert is saying that the, he believes that she was holding the gun with both hands and one argument that the family has always had was that, look, she she was right-handed. The gun's found near her left hand. Well, this might explain away that scenario because they're saying she would not have used her weaker, less dominant hand. And the experts are saying, well, she probably used both hands and the gun was upside down. Now, they go on to say that the recoiling of the gun after the shot could have created that cut which is very difficult to believe because a gun doesn't recoil forward it recoils backward away from where the shots fired so that doesn't ring true it rings less true to me than than uh, the idea that it would have moved forward and created this bruise slash cut above her right eye the other thing too that i want to point out and make perfectly clear if if we were reviewing a homicide case yes sir or a child abduction case which we do a lot of those here right we always talk about motive even if we know who the perpetrator was or even if we don't know who the perpetrator was right we talk about what could be the possible motive in those scenarios well let's talk about what could be the possible motive for her to commit suicide because i couldn't i couldn't find it yeah my issue here too is like if her friends and family are telling us what's correct. And now this is not information that the deputies got right away. And this is not in their report of them claiming it's a suicide because they just didn't do their work to interview and, and talk to everybody. But when you talk to the fa- friends and family and they say, well, yeah, she was 
planning on ending this relationship and but going to the concert anyways. So the fact that she would be so distraught over this breakup that she was planning to initiate doesn't make a lot of sense to me. It's almost like, I mean, take another suicide scenario. Man loses his job, he's distraught, goes home and kills himself. Most of the time, a man doesn't quit his job and is so distraught that he quit his job to start a new life that he goes home and kills himself. Yeah, if It doesn't it, add up. If it's reactionary, it's reactionary because it's something that is out of your control. Right. right. Being fired from your job opposed to willingly quitting your job. Where here, it doesn't make any sense. Even the wording that he says, she told me, you make me so mad that I want to kill myself. Okay, let's set that aside for just one second and examine that in, in just a minute. That's one of the dumbest statements but ever. First of all, she told people in advance, I'm breaking up with him this night. Tonight, after the concert, I'm breaking up with him. How do we know that happened? Because several people told her, you know what? Maybe you probably shouldn't go to the concert. Right. This seems like a big deal. Maybe you shouldn't go to the concert. Fill in the blanks here for people that don't know the case. I get why she went to the concert. She paid for the tickets. Concerts aren't cheap. And on top of that, it wasn't just Jeremy and Michelle going to the concert. It was three couples. Yeah, very good point. So this was like a group event. Why not go and have a good time? Or at least attempt to. You've you've only been with this guy for his own words a year and some odd months. Living girlfriend for over a year. This is not like love of your life scenario. Well, and <laughs> and again, she knows that not, that she's going to break up with him. It's not something that is out of her control. She could have chose to do that at another time. She has a daughter. She's a good mother. There's no, I could see no reason for her to kill herself. And then let's say that, let's say that for some reason she did say to Jeremy, you make me so mad. I want to kill myself. Well, doesn't that sound like a vengeful, angry thing? Wouldn't you do that in as much of a way possible to hurt him? Out of anger, I'm not going to sit here and pretend to be an expert on suicide, but I would think that that would involve something a little more up close and personal than locking yourself in a bedroom while your ex-significant other is who knows where. Yeah, I I get people's argument of if you're going to break up with Jeremy that you don't go to the concert with him, but... If he's planning on that, going to that concert with you and then you then tell him, hey, I'm going to take somebody else, we know that this guy has been violent or physical towards her based on what her friends and family have said. We know that they've had very heated arguments that people, when when she's talking about her relationship to friends and family, they all know that it's more argumentative than a positive. It's more of a negative relationship than a positive relationship. If you don't go to the concert with Jeremy and you go with somebody else or just go by yourself, you're running the risk of him calling, harassing you and ruining 
your experience when you spent the money on these tickets. Now, I will say there are some weird text messages from Michelle's phone that night, and nobody is disputing that these texts come from Michelle herself. And these, to me, would make me call into question the idea of suicide here. So she had sent some texts to her friends and some of her family that night. This is on the way and on the way to and from the Paramore concert that she and Jeremy went to. So she texts her friend Mindy Fox at 8.14 p.m. saying, quote, I'm stressed out. She texts her sister Christine shortly before 9 p.m. saying, promise me one thing. Lexi, which is her daughter, will be happy and always have a good life. Now, we should note here, because I'm sure some people were asking this question, Lexi is her daughter from a previous relationship, not Jeremy Banks' daughter. Right, I believe she's eight years old at the time. Her sister responding to the text comes back with promise you what question mark. And Michelle responds that no matter what, Lexi will always be safe and loved. Michelle responded, make sure Lexi is number one, not like us. Her sister responds, what's going on? I'm scared. So I'm not the only one that thinks that these texts are weird. Clearly her sister does as well. Now, a text to her brother, Scott, Michelle wrote at 10.06 p.m., Lexi, never forget. Now, to some of the investigators, these texts were as good as a suicide note. I think you can make an argument either way. I think you could say that these sound suicidal and that she's possibly going to do something to herself. And I think you can make the argument that they sound like somebody that's now in a a difficult situation or maybe abusive situation and she's afraid for her life. Yes, I wonder here if this, while it sounds like she may know that the end is near for her, so that would point towards suicide, you could flip the coin and it land on the other side to me, which would say maybe she's experienced some physical abuse from Jeremy Banks or was concerned that that's the level that this thing could get to and escalate to tonight. And I'm just doing the motherly thing and making sure that I've circled the wagons and my friends and family have my back and my daughter's back. And I know that no matter how this ends for me or what comes of tonight, that my daughter will be taken care of. Hell, who knows? A lot of times in these situations, yes, we do have an abuser, but there are some times where we have situations where people just physically fight each other. And that to me is very different than abuse. Who's to say that it's never come to that for them? Who's to say that these strange texts don't mean, well, if I end up in jail tonight, because I got to defend myself or because he and I sometimes get into it in the worst way. Will my daughter be taken care of tomorrow and the following day and the day after that until I can figure this thing out? As said, the investigators believe these texts were as good as a suicide note. We know that based off of what uh, the sheriff in charge said in his report. And then we also have the St. John's County medical examiner who seemed to agree because the cause of death was a rule to suicide. 
and an intral oral gunshot wound. This was the ruling by Dr. Frederick Hoban, who issued the determination. And on the autopsy worksheet, the doctor's notes say under how injury occurred, quote, decedent shot herself with an HG, meaning a handgun. One thing that is weird, we keep citing statistics here, but one thing that is weird that we should know is that an intraoral gunshot are almost exclusively suicides. So just within hours of the shooting, a St. John's Sheriff's Office deputy went to Michelle's sister's home and said, well, the investigation is done, it's a suicide, and no other explanation was given. I want to thank everybody for joining us here in the garage. So much more to get to. Join us back here in the garage tomorrow. Same bat time, same bat channel. And until then, be good, be kind, and don't litter. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.